Welcome to Scientific American's Science Talk, posted on July 11th, 2017. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... The monument contains an ecosystem that was undiscovered 30 or 40 years ago. It's got these deep-sea coral species that live over a thousand years. That's Scott Kraus. He's the vice president and senior science advisor at the Anderson Cabot Center for Ocean Life at the New England Aquarium in Boston. And he was one of the authors in March 2016 of a scientific assessment for a proposed marine national monument off the Northeast U.S. That led to the creation last year of what's now called the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts Marine National Monument, which is already under threat. I spoke to Krauss by phone. Tell me, what are the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts Marine National Monument? The Northeast Canyons and Seamounts Marine National Monument encompasses a body of water and the submarine lands around three deep-sea canyons called Oceanographer, Lydonia, and Gilbert, and then uh, four seamounts, Bear, Physalia, Retriever, and Mytilus. And the the seamounts are incredible. They actually rise from the abyssal plain at about 14,000 feet up to about 1,000 feet or 2,000 feet underwater, so that they actually represent undersea mountains on the order of, uh, you know, 12,000 feet high. And these are extinct volcanoes? They are. They are extinct volcanoes, and they uh, represent sort of this deep water seamounts habitat, which is not, you know, we're just beginning to understand what goes on in these places. They're quite unusual. Um, and then the deep-sea canyons are sort of residual canyons left over from uh, the glaciation uh, over Georgia's Bank. They're on the southern edge of Georgia's Bank, and they uh, start at about 200 meters of depth, and they go down to the abyssal plain about, uh, you know, like uh, 4,000 meters, something like that. For us terrestrial people, uh, tell us where exactly this is in relation to the land we live on. Okay, if you were standing on Cape Cod and you were standing on, let's say, the southern uh, point of Chatham and looking offshore, you would be looking over George's Bank. You'd be looking across the Great South Channel, and then you have George's Bank, and then sort of on the right-hand side of your view field, if you're looking at George's Bank, they're down there. They're a little bit to the south of the Cape and about 130 miles east. And these are currently protected waters. Yes, yeah, so what they what the proclamation under the Antiquities Act that made them a monument went through several iterations, but the final proclamation actually divided the monument into two sections. One is a a smaller square which encompasses the canyons and the second one is a uh, slightly larger triangle which extends from the innermost uh, seamount which is called bear out to the uh, boundary of the US economic zone which is um, you know it's 200 miles offshore so th- that's the sort of the shape of the two sections there and um, they are protected from things like uh, seabed mining, oil and gas drilling, 
most fisheries, but not all, uh, they are some things like recreational fishing is allowed, uh, you know, well watching, bird watching, if you wanted to do that. But I can't throw a 40 mile net down around there. That's correct. And uh, this only became really a, a monument very recently, right? Uh, in, uh, hmm, it was in, I think, uh, November, December of last year, so 2016, right in the end of Obama's presidency. And what is the purpose of, of having this protected area? I, I saw a fisherman uh, describe it on a video as being a generator for the larger area around it, a generator of biodiversity. Well, I think that's actually a pretty good characterization of it. For one thing, the monument uh, contains an ecosystem that was undiscovered 30 or 40 years ago. It's got these deep-sea coral species that live over a thousand years, and the whole ecosystem around them is an extremely old ecosystem. A lot of things depend upon the coral substructure and the and the organisms that live around and on corals. And... Um, you know, if you had to make a terrestrial analog, you would think about something like the Joshua Tree National Monument or perhaps uh, the Sequoia National Forest, where you've got incredibly large plants with hundreds of years of uh, animals and plants that have lived around it, and the whole ecosystem is built around those giant trees. In the deep sea, you don't see anything the size of a sequoia, but some of these corals uh, which were unknown to science, and they're still discovering, you know, dozens of new species every time they put a, a ROV or an, a submarine down there. These corals are sometimes eight to ten feet tall, uh, and sometimes larger, and it's just extraordinarily unusual habitat with remarkable colors for such a, a dark place, um, and yet. You know, we, we don't know much about it. It's just an extraordinary uh, place for discovery. Uh, one of the things that motivated us, of course, is climate change is happening in the ocean in the northwestern Atlantic faster than any other place on the planet. One of the things that uh, having a place where there's no human activity that's doing any damage to the or exploiting any resources within an area is that it serves as a reference point if, for example, you have big climatological changes and animals or fish or benthic uh, organisms die off or move away, uh, one could argue if there's fishing in that area or intensive fishing, then you could argue, well, the fishermen did it. But if there are no fishermen in there, then it serves as a reference point that allows you to use, think of it as a control experiment where if things change within it, it's likely due to temperature and acidity, you know, changes in climate and not due to any kind of human activities. And we have no place, actually, in the Atlantic where we can actually do that. There's no control place at the moment. I don't know if this is a, a fruitful line, but I think most people are aware of the fact that, you know, the cod fishery really was damaged by overfishing. And my understanding is that this is a, an area where cod have a chance to rebound and then would actually leave the area and repopulate the surrounding area. Actually, uh, there's an area, one of the original uh, monuments uh, proposals was for an area called Cassius Bank, which is where 
it's been closed to fishing by the Fishery Management Council for 14 or 15 years. And that is the area where cod are actually appear to be growing larger and having more babies and recovering it in some measure in the Gulf of Maine. For the area in the uh, monuments, the existing, that place was not designated because of fishing opposition. The Northeast Canyons and Seamounts National Marine Monument actually is a probably a source uh, habitat for a variety of commercial species that do spill up onto Georgia's Bank and other areas, and they include things like uh, deep sea redfish, tilefish, and red crab. So it it turns out that whenever areas of the ocean have been closed off to fishing, fish rebound in those areas, and invertebrates, things like lobsters and shellfish rebound in big numbers. And where long-term studies have been going on, where these things have been closed, places like New Zealand and Belize, fishermen become their biggest advocates because, in fact, the areas around the monuments or the closed areas turn out to be some of the best fishing around. Um, so that it is a source of spillover. It's just not likely to be a good source for cod. Okay, so cod is... The Cassius Bank uh, area, which is not what we're talking about, but is related to what we're talking about. Right. The same kind of principles apply here. One of the things that's very interesting about the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts is that uh, one of the reasons it was an attractive area for a marine monument, it was this extraordinary biodiversity on the deep sea. But it's also a really extraordinary, there's a lot of biodiversity for marine mammals, sea turtles and um, and some seabirds as well. And so it turned out that the shelf edge, this deep, uh, sh- deep to shallow sort of change in topography there, creates a lot of oceanography that really makes it quite exciting at in the bottom and at the surface for a biologist because there's lots of cool stuff to see. But it also um, provides critical feeding and breeding and migrating habitat for all those species. And there are no protected areas anywhere in the Atlantic Ocean right now in the United States economic zone. So this was basically the first one. And it was one at which in which there was a fair amount of science that supported the kind of unique characteristics of it. Because you have this canyon, uh, a lot of nutrients come spilling down into it, and that cranks up the uh, the, the food web there? Yeah, it's actually really, I think we're, again, it's a, a little bit early to say how this thing works, but the whole, the whole area is interesting because you've got big currents like the Gulf Stream south of Georgia's Bank that circulates, it leaves from Cape Hatteras and heads off toward uh, England, right? And north of that, there are these big uh, warm core and cold core eddies that circulate around just south of the canyons and seamounts. And when they when they hit that continental shelf edge, where which is basically a big underwater cliff that drops from George's Bank down to the Abyssal Plain, uh, it creates a lot of turbulence. Just as when a, a, a front coming across from the Pacific hits the Rocky Mountains, there's all of a sudden storms and all kinds of things happen. So same kind of thing happens underwater, but in the case of the monuments area, it's actually bringing a lot of cold water and nutrients up out of the deep ocean into the surface layer, creates incredible productivity, and that stimulates all this biodiversity that we see both at the surface and in the bottom. 
So this this region's been protected for less than a year, but it's already under threat because of the new presidential administration. Yes, they are reviewing all of the monuments. There, uh, I mean, I don't. It's not my expertise to know what the legality of changing or rescinding monuments is. I know it's never been done. I guess there's one case where a monument was uh, protections were changed, but um, if it were on land, generally. Most people in the United States have been to a national park, and they absolutely, almost everyone loves them. Uh, they're probably less familiar with some of the monuments, but some of them have been extraordinary historical places like Gettysburg and elsewhere, and most people are extremely moved by that. And I think that generally there is support for setting aside these unusual places for all Americans for the future. And uh, if it were on land, there would be probably more, you know, people, one, one of my uh, colleagues has characterized this area of the monuments to being like in a Dr. Seuss book. If you were to fly through some of these canyons, these bubblegum corals are, they look like they're giant trees made out of bubblegum. And it is really, uh, you can't make this stuff up. So, if you had this on land, people would be delighted to go see it. It'd be like Disneyland. Um, and a lot of people had said, well, it's way out there. I know I'm never going to benefit from it. I'm never going to see it. But in fact, uh, my colleagues at Mystic Aquarium and at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and myself, we've been, we've been uh, scheming up a plan to actually put some ocean observatories out there and do some expeditions where we could stream live a lot of the stuff, the exploration and the discovery that happens in a place like that back into the aquariums, both in Boston and at Mystic, so that you could actually share it with millions of people. Uh, so it's it's kind of an argument of last resort that, well, I'll never see it, and so it's not very valuable, uh, because, in fact, we can make it accessible. Not to mention, whether you see it or not, there's the value of, of protecting it for its contributions to biodiversity in the ocean in general. Well, yes, I agree with that, but I, I don't want to get too geeky about it. You know, I, I understand the value of biodiversity, but we are in a world in which People do want to see monetary value, and they want to understand what uh, what it exactly. How does this benefit me? And so, I think uh, as much as I might uh, be thoroughly happy with just the preservation of certain levels of biodiversity, it is important to see and to make the case, especially for scientists, to make the case that in fact biodiversity benefits people directly, even if they don't see it. And there is some uh, fisheries economics benefit if these particular attractive species are regenerating their populations based on this protection. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Uh, there, there was quite a bit of pushback on this particular monument from the fishing communities, most of whom never go out there and don't benefit from it. And I just happened to see an analysis by the New England Fishery Management Council in which they argued that all fishing restrictions in the monument should be rescinded and the management of fishing should be turned over to them. And one of the issues uh, that, if you read their analysis, what's really interesting is that uh, they're about... Uh, 80 fishermen who have claimed to fish out there at some time or another. But the average income for 
any one of those fishermen is less than 1% of their annual income. So it wasn't a very valuable place for them. There's about seven or eight guys for which uh, there's a legitimate case to be made that they have some fishing interest in the area. But two things should be, people should be aware of two things about this. One is that the proclamation that declared the monument exempted those guys for the next seven years. They can keep fishing there for seven years, and then after that they have to find other places. So they have quite a buffer of time to figure out what they're doing. And the second thing that the New England Fishery Management Council analysis showed was that even among those guys who still have some legitimate fishing interest out there, there, it was represented less than 10% of their annual income. So again, it was a small fraction of uh, the fishing value that these guys um, get from the ocean. And it was one of the, that was one of the reasons that it was felt generally that the smaller size, this, this monument has changed in size. It was originally when the Senator Blumenthal of Connecticut originally proposed the monument. It extended all up and down the southern margins of George's Bank and included a lot of uh, the seamounts out to the economic zone boundary. And that's been changed to accommodate the fisheries that are off to the east of it. And there was it was separated from the inshore area by also accommodating the travel of uh, the pelagic longliners up along the continental shelf edge. So the monument's been shrunk quite a bit, and what's left is actually quite a good representation of this deep water shelf edge habitat, which is not protected anywhere else. When you say pelagic longliners, you're talking about those 40-mile net fishing boats that I mentioned briefly earlier? No, the, the pelagic longliners are a group of pretty responsible fishermen who fish with uh, long lines that have, like, hooks every 100 meters or something. Oh, okay. And they're baited hooks that collect uh, uh, swordfish and bluefin tuna and some other types of tuna as well. And they are, they've been at the forefront of doing uh, quite a bit of work on ways to reduce bycatch of unwanted species and... Uh, eliminate turtle bycatch and all that stuff. So they're pretty responsible fishery. And this is also not a big area for most of them either. Uh, we don't have a lot of data on their fishery, but uh, it doesn't look like too many guys fishing there. So right now the monument is in a state of uncertainty. thing about marine monuments is they fall under two jurisdictions. One is uh, interior and commerce under the National Marine Fishery Service, or the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And so the two agencies work together to try to figure out how monuments should be managed. They usually have joint superintendents or joint management in some way. And are there going to be hearings at which you might be testifying? The the work that was done leading up to the monument designation included a couple of hearings and several public fora and then a series of interviews with Council of Environmental Quality and uh, some of the administration, some of the previous administration's officials who came to New England and talked to a lot of stakeholders. Uh, I don't know what the process is going to be going forward. If they decide to do alterations to the monument, would they hold public hearings? I have no idea. So we'll have to see how it evolves. And I uh, just want listeners to know that there are videos uh, shot underwater in this area that you can access on the web right now. And it, it really is pretty remarkable how dense it is with life and, and, 
colorful and all the different kinds of species you'll see. Yeah, it's pretty extraordinary, and there are uh, several places where you can look at uh, some of the ongoing footage online. I know the Mystic Aquarium is planning to develop a monuments exhibit, so you can actually see a lot of the stuff uh, in that exhibit. And uh, like I said, we're talking with Woods Hole about developing uh, more extensive uh, ways of uh, actually seeing what's out there in real time. Any idea when any kind of decision is going to be made? I believe that the uh, secretary has promised to make some decisions within 45 days of his meetings with the fishermen and with us in Boston. So that's uh, probably another month away, is this, probably mid-August. Is this interior or commerce? Interior. Okay. And uh, your your actual research specialty is uh, is whales, marine mammals? Yeah, I, I've been working... Um, with uh, whales and dolphins for most of my career, and that is my specialty. My interest in this area offshore was to really look at, uh, you know, we were asked to do a scientific analysis of what would be appropriate to designate as a marine monument. And my colleague Peter Oster at the University of Connecticut did the benthic work or the coral work, and I did the marine mammal work. And the marine mammal work is quite extraordinary because it's, not animals that you would see on a whale watch. If you were to go out from Boston or Cape Cod on a whale watch, you're going to see humpbacks and fin whales and minke whales and maybe some white-sided dolphins and harbor porpoise. If you go out to the continental shelf edge where the monument is, you'll see 10 to 12 different species of whales and dolphins, and none of almost none of them will overlap with the species that would, you would see in the inshore waters. They're just... Uh, the shelf edge species are quite different, and um, you also get uh, you get a selection of animals out there that are some of the champion deep divers of the world. So, for example, there's uh, two or three species of beaked whales that lived out there. People are probably not familiar with that term, but a beaked whale, and that that's just like it sounds, beaked like a bird beak. Um, these whales dive up to two hours at a time, and they can go six thousand feet deep. And um, they primarily live on squid, and they're just really interesting creatures, extraordinary adaptations to deep ocean living. And uh, they're found out there, but they're not found anywhere else inshore. So it's just one of the really interesting features of that area. And, of course, by protecting it, it creates the first place in the Atlantic where marine mammals can go where they don't have... uh, probability of getting entangled in some kind of fishing gear well we'll uh we'll keep uh, following this story and see how it develops and thanks for taking the time to talk to us today okay happy to do it that's it for this episode get your science news at our website www.scientificamerican.com where you can also check out the article titled the problem with being a top performer about how being excellent at your job may wind up getting you punished. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. <laughs>